Take your Bible, if you would, and join me today in Genesis chapter number three. <clears throat> Genesis chapter number three. It was on December 18th, <clears throat> 1956, and it aired on CBS that the show debuted, and the makeup of the show was as follows. There were four celebrity panelists, and there were three contestants, and of course, a show host. And the show would go something like this. After everyone was seated and the celebrities introduced, the three panelists were ushered in and set before the, the four celebrity panel um, hosts. And the, the person would say, the first of the contestants would say something like, hello, my name is, and again, to borrow a name, my name is Tim Zacharias. And then the second person would say, hello, my name is Tim Zacharias. And the third person would say, hello, my name is Tim Zacharias. And then the four celebrity panel would start the work of questioning. So they would say, well, tell me contestant number one or, or Tim Zacharias number one, and they'd ask a question. And every time this contestant is, depending on who they asked, either going to do one of two things. He's either going to tell the truth or he's going to tell a lie. And that would happen over and over and over again through the course of a 30 minute show. And then at the end of the show, the, the four celebrity panel was supposed to say, I believe, and they would write down on a card that the real Tim Zacharias is contestant number one, two, or three. And then the host of the show would say, would the real Tim Zacharias please stand up? And then of course, one person would start to stand and then another, and then finally, the real Tim Zacharias would stand up. The title of the show was To Tell the Truth. Eve was alone. And I think that was purposeful, not by chance, that, that the tempter came to her when she was at a weakened state. Certainly she, she could have chosen otherwise, but... He didn't do anything by chance or by happenstance. He was purposeful. She was not with the one that would help strengthen her. The two together would have made a stronger front against the attack. And he came with subtlety. The, the word can be used both in a positive and in a negative sense. And here, of course, it's used negatively. And he began as he does with every temptation. He began by questioning the veracity of the word of God. He's trying not in overt terms. He's not trying with, with some shocking force to, to bring into question the word of God. He's going to do so with subtlety. And he simply asks a question that is the title of our sermon today. 
And the question is simply, hath God said? Did, did God really mean? Is, is this what I'm to understand that God has communicated to you? When we opened the series in the book of Genesis, we, be, we, we began with, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, creation. The place we find ourselves now is in the beginning. Now, as things are unfolding for us in this book of beginnings, now at the beginning, not just God's creation, but now we start to see man's corruption. Three chapters in from the beginning of the Bible, the serpent makes his first appearance. Three chapters from the end of the Bible, the serpent makes his final appearance. And the result of his work are woven into what we think we find in every page now of scripture. Your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter three. Look with me, if you will, at verse number one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, as we begin our look at what some people have said is the most significant chapter in all of the Bible, let's begin by looking at the one that we've identified already as our foe. Let's look a little bit more carefully at this one who presents himself with subtlety and begins to question the word of God. Our adversary is truly a formidable foe. He walks about as a roaring lion. He's not the cartoon character that we've oftentimes tried to him, imagine him as. He's not the one who comes out in his, in his little red suit and, and he has a long, thin mustache and, and he has little horns on his head and a spiky tail and a pitchfork in his hand. He walks about as the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When we start to consider his characteristics, we, we begin by understanding even at this early introduction that Satan is subtle. Again, in Genesis chapter three, verse number one, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. You say, well, are, are we sure we're talking here about Satan? Is this the one that's being referenced? The, the serpent more subtle. I believe that the serpent was just the vehicle and Satan now is the subject. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse number nine, and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And some may question as to why did he choose the serpent? Well, I would suggest to you that he always chooses that which serves his purpose to the best end. 
Apparently in this instance, for whatever reason, it was the serpent. We know that this is not the only time that Satan or his minions, his demons have inhabited an animal. In fact, you'd remember that one time when Jesus cast out the legion of demons, those demons went out and they, they then put themselves into other animals, a herd of swine, and they, they, they ran and, and plunged themselves off the edge of a cliff. They inhabited an animal. I don't know this for fact, but I think there might be a dog in my neighborhood that is actually possessed, okay? Don't think this is his only disguise. Remember, he inhabits that, that thing or that form that, that best suits and serves his purposes. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 14, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. When we think about our foe, what do, what do we think about him? Well, we think that he is subtle. It means he comes with a patient attack. He's playing the long game. And with a strategic game plan, he's working to wear you down, to erode your defenses. And he always begins at the same place with a question of whom to believe. Satan is subtle. What does he do with this subtlety? Well, our foe begins with a question that's connected to the word of God. Again, Genesis 3, verse number one, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said? Satan begins his subtle deceptions with Eve and he's going to engage her in what we might even term as some kind of intellectual discussion regarding the word of God. He wants her to just begin to process is this really what God said? Is this what God meant? Is this what God intended? Don't you find it interesting how much of God's truth can be twisted by an appeal to our own intellect as opposed to a simple and straightforward acceptance of the word of God? Please understand the Bible is a book that can stand the test of the greatest minds, the most thorough intellectual probings but how many times has a person shipwrecked either their faith or the faith of others because they attempted to elevate their intellect above the word of God, standing then as the judge and jury over what God has said. Satan is leading Eve down an intellectual pathway, asking her to be the evaluator of the word of God versus what should be reasonable to any thinking person? The word of God versus seriously, I mean, who does that? The word of God versus, well, let me tell you, truth to me is, and Satan is actually from the very beginning. Let me ask you a question. Eve, did God really say it all begins with a question connected to the word of God. 
Satan so obviously twists what God actually said, he wants it to be some kind of a, well, he didn't actually say that. You say, well, how so? Again, yea, hath God said, and he goes on and he said, did God really say, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What an incredible and obvious twisting of the word of God. Satan is saying, did God really tell you that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Is this how extreme God is? He jumps to some place where, where any reasonable person would say, well, well, no, God didn't say that. Do you ever feel pressured when someone says, are you serious? Did your parents really say that you're not allowed to? Or I heard you Christians can't even, or your church is so strange. I heard that you all never, do you know what Satan's doing from the very beginning? He starts to try to back Eve into a corner. Eve, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And now she's a bit on the defensive. Well, well, well no, I mean, he didn't say that. Do you know, so often, even today, the tactics remain the same. He, he presents God in a manner that God must be absolutely unreasonable to demand this of you. When you think about it, every time I sin, every time I suspect that you sin, it becomes a battle of who and what we are going to believe. And Satan is a master of sowing seeds of doubt. So he begins by questioning the word of God. And now look what other door this begins to open. He doesn't just question the word of God. Now he, he leans into the next line of attack. He's questioning the goodness of God. Before we see Satan's question, let's see what God actually said. Okay, what did God say? Genesis 2, beginning in verse number 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Listen, if you circle things in your Bible, those are good words to circle. What God is saying is, listen, of every tree in the garden, you can freely partake. In fact, God says, I am putting no restrictions on you regarding every tree of the garden, but one. Of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die freely. It means without restriction, to whatever degree you choose, to enjoy with no sense of guilt, no shame, no regret, freely. When writing to Timothy, Paul said that we are to trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. He, he's saying that God continually places before us a banquet of his goodness. And he says, just partake. Go ahead, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no restriction. All of those things that I have given you to enjoy, all of those things within the realm of my goodness, he says, I've given those things to you and I want you to enjoy it. 
Do you know, sometimes I think Christians get in this, this mental place where they're thinking, if I'm enjoying something, it's probably not of God. And that's not the God of Scripture. God places them in a garden and he says, hey, listen, this is yours. I've created it thoughtfully, purposefully, with you in mind. Have fun. Except, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt, and he uses the word, surely die. How often do we begin to question God's goodness We start to wonder if God is withholding something good from us when in reality, it is because he is good that he is withholding something from us. Not for any other purpose, for no other reason. In Psalm 84, verse number 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Lord, I just want to do what you want me to do. He doesn't say from those who walk perfectly, for those who like they've never blown it, they've never made a mistake, they've never taken a misstep. He says, no, 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 just those who want to walk with me. He says, your pathway is going to be filled with every good thing. Satan questions the goodness of God directly by implying that God is keeping something back from her that he didn't want to share Eve, it appears that God's being a little selfish with his goodness. He's withholding something good back from you. Genesis 3, 5, for God doth know, the tempter said, that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan is simply saying, Eve, God's been withholding something good from you. And by the tempter's subtlety, it appears that Eve agrees. Even when we look a little bit later in the same passage, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Wow, the the serpent, he's got a point. I, I think God may actually be withholding something from me that, that would be good. Why is God keeping something back from me that is in fact good for food? Satan questioning God's goodness, his subtlety now is working. Just like the serpent said, God is keeping something good back from me. If God were truly good, why wouldn't he want me to have what is, as I can see with my own eyes, something that is good for food? This is the way of our foe. If we go a little bit further, we start to see some of the details that are related now to our fall. Yeah, the foe is early introduced, chapter three. And now we start to see the results of this tempter that will soon lead to our fall. How does this happen? Well, it commenced, it began with doubt. Remember, Satan, by misinterpreting, by mispresenting God in his word, Satan is now going to misrepresent sin. And again, it's all connected to doubt. Eve began by doubting what God said and then went a step further by doubting who God is. Is he really good? 
She begins by doubting the word of God. Wow, did God really say? And now notice how this leads to not only a question regarding his word, now I'm wondering about God himself. Remember the seeds of doubt were being planted as soon as Eve entertained the question regarding the word of God. In Genesis 1, we said that we're gonna have to face the question of God's goodness. Is he always and only good? And if not, what are the other options? Satan was causing Eve to question God's goodness. It's a question ultimately of good versus evil. And these are the two choices. Eve would have never come out and said immediately, God is evil. But if God's not good, what is he? Again, in chapter two, we're introduced to a new name for God. It is represented in English as the Lord God. It is Jehovah Elohim. This is the name that says that God is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. This is the name that says God keeps his covenant promises. This is the name that, that any person can say, God, you are Jehovah Elohim. You are the great I am. You are the one that can be trusted because you said it, I can believe it. But I find it interesting that while Jehovah Elohim is introduced, uh, neither the tempter nor Eve use the name Lord God. In fact, when we first see this, this mention, Eve leaves his name out completely when talking about the words of God. And the woman said to the serpent, verse two, we may eat of the fruit of all the trees of the garden. She doesn't say that, that God said, or the Lord God said, we can eat of every tree of the garden. And then she goes on and she says, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. I find this, this again interesting, that when it came to her freedoms, she left God out. When it came to her restrictions, she includes God. Well, I can do whatever I want. Oh, no, 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 no. D don't misunderstand, serpent. Uh, we can eat of any tree of the garden. Oh, but God said, I can't eat of that one. You know, so often we want to say, my freedoms are mine. The only restrictions I have are those that come from God. And so now we do see that even as the tempter is questioning the goodness of God, it appears that Eve begins to do the same. It, it commenced with doubt, it continues with denial. Let's first remember exactly what God had in fact said. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, once the doubt had set in, Satan goes for a much bigger reach. Eve reiterates the essential message, although not with complete accuracy. Uh, Genesis 3, 3, but of the fruit, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Eve, that's not what God said. She just adds to God's command. He never commanded that they not touch it. Certainly this might, might be a good practice. It might be some good security, but it's not what God said. Th this could, could 
due with some additional time. But we're not going to go past this without at least mentioning it. And I hope, I hope all of us are listening right now. Often, well-meaning Christians elevate their own standards that they've raised to help keep them from sin to the same level as the word of God. It is dangerous and wrong, and it's exactly what Eve had just said. Okay, now let's, let's flesh that out for just a moment, and then we still have things we need to cover. Okay, have you ever raised a standard before that almost took the same legitimate place as the word of God? Uh, well, let me tell you, one of the things that we always do here at Campus Church is... And now we almost elevate something to the same level as the word of God, as if this is the command of God. Do, do you know what Eve does? She says, um, well, God said that, that um, we're not to eat of it. We're not even to touch it lest we die. Now, maybe she and Adam came up with a don't touch it because we don't wanna get close to it. Do you know a standard is always intended to be raised to keep us from something that harms us and to protect something that's good. So I wanna protect my freedom, so I'm gonna raise a standard. How sad it is when a Christian elevates the standard to the same place as that which it was intended to protect. And by the way, believer, you may have some standards that someone else doesn't have, but you're both concerned about protecting the same thing. This is an, an early insight on Eve saying, uh, no, we, we can't even touch it lest we die. That's not what God said. And I would suspect that, that if someone else came along and started touching the tree, Eve might have said, you're not allowed to touch the tree, God said, but, but God didn't actually say. So what we're finding here is, is Eve's defenses are clearly wearing down. And now there comes to a place where there is an outright denial. The tempter has her where he wants her. Satan's deception was clearly progressional. Now he led Eve to the place where he could directly contradict God. And notice how one seemingly small denial of what God actually said leads to additional denials. Genesis 3, 4, and the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. God said, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The serpent now is at a place where he couldn't have begun, but with boldness, with some sense of impunity, thou shalt not, seriously, Eve, how dare God tell you this? Eve, I'm here to tell you because I clearly have your best interest in mind. You can do what you want. You will not surely die. God had just said the opposite. Can you see here that the whole temptation hinges on the matter of whom to believe? Would she believe Satan or would she believe God? Isn't it interesting that in salvation, for a person to truly be rescued from condemnation, from eternal death, from eternal separation from God, don't you find it at least insightful that all of salvation hinges on obviously the finished work of Jesus Christ and then your belief? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, verse number 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. A passage we read earlier today, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. By the word of God. Born again by the word of God. Listen, if you're a believer, that means that you're saying, God, I reject my own way. There was a way that seemed right to me, I reject that way. There's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end of that way is is death. There is a way, there is a truth, there is a life, and that is found exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. Once we come to the place where we doubt, we are prepared to deny, and this culminates in clear delusion. Genesis 3, beginning in verse number four, the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now listen to this delusional thought. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The word gods here is Elohim. Satan said, you're going to be just like God. This is delusional thinking. Eve's now convinced that God is not good. He's not gracious. Instead, he must be selfish. He's deceptive. And further, he's preventing her from experiencing the same position that he has as Elohim. How delusional we can become. The world today is boldly proclaiming that we are all gods and we hold the world's destiny in our own hands. No, there is one who holds the world in his hands. And his name is not mine, nor is it yours. Well, where does this take us? We, we see our foe, that is Satan. We see the fall and that is mankind's. And, and what now is our focus? What, what happens? What is it that she's doing? Genesis chapter three, verse number six. And when the woman saw She now is focused on an outcome that will lead to consequences, not just for the rest of her life, but it has consequences now for mankind for all of eternity. She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Eve's focus is now established, yet her gaze goes far beyond the forbidden fruit. We often use the expression, some things never change. And that certainly could be used of Satan. How does the apostle John detail the tactics of Satan's devices? How does he alter our focus? The Bible says for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. So notice what we just saw. In 1 John chapter 2, verse number 16, the Bible says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
and the pride of life. So we have these three primary sources of temptation. Okay, notice how this is the same temptation that Satan uses against Eve. The lust of the flesh, that is, it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes. The pride of life, it was able to make one wise. Satan doesn't change in his approach and in his tactics. He's using the same things over and over again. Eve is looking at far more than the fruit. She's looking at God and his position. And while she may not be able to articulate it in this way, she wants to sit on his throne. She's coveting the very place and position of God. So who who else has done that? Isaiah 14, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. But how does this quest for God's throne conclude for Lucifer? Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Satan's quest had become Eve's. What a strange twist of fate. Satan was the one with the quest himself to be God and he seduced another to join him. But did the promise of Satan And let's use this expression or this phrase. Did the promise ring true? I don't know if you, like me, would fully understand that expression. Did it ring true? But I used the expression maybe a year ago in a sermon that I was preaching. And and one of our church members came up afterwards, or actually a couple days afterwards, and he presented me with something from the expression ring true. And it's just this he presented me with a little tuning fork. And um, I honestly gave it to me and it's set in, in my study at home um, with some other special little articles. And, and I just picked it up the other day and, and I did a little study on it because I don't know how to use it. In fact, I would ring it like this. You, you know, you're supposed to strike it on something. And so you'd kind of think that it's broken. You, you can't hear a thing. Now, I don't know if this will work or not. We we haven't tried it. I didn't try it before. But you can take it and put it right here. Can you hear it? Okay, listen. I don't know if you can, but I can hear it really clearly. Can you hear that? Not at all. Okay, they say you can do it here too, okay? I tried here. Can you hear that? I can hear it so clearly. Can you hear that? You say, no, I can't hear that. Okay, watch this. Can I borrow your your violin? I asked him before if I could borrow his violin because these are, how old is this? Very, okay. So so be careful in other words, right? Okay. Okay, watch, no, 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 I'm not gonna. (laughs) Okay, I asked him if if I could borrow his violin and, and he said, yes, you may. Okay, let's see if this works. Now, I think you touched it on this part. Is that correct? Is it okay to touch it here? Okay. That's my Bible. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
Okay, here we go. Can you hear it? Do you know what's really interesting about something to ring true is it has to touch the object before the object can be touched. You say, well, that's kind of obvious. Listen, I can ring this thing all day long and you can't hear a thing, but man, all I have to do is just like put it, I can hear it so clearly. Which, um, is this the A? Is that what you said it is? Which string is that? The second one, this one? Okay, so let's see if it, if it rings true. Okay, so, can you hear it? Um, can you turn this microphone on? Okay, so this one's off, this one's on, okay. So, yeah, that one's on, okay. <laughs> the sound guys hate it when you do that, okay. Okay, so you can't hear. Ooh, wow, that's cool, wow. Okay. It kind of ruins my illustration, too. Just so you know. okay, let's try it this way. Okay, and then... That's not it. Oh, the other side. This one. This... Aha! Such a great illustration. Okay. Okay, let's do it one more time. Hey, okay, it rings true. Okay, here's what Eve was trying to do. Let's go back to this one, okay. Here's what Eve was trying to do. Eve was trying to be the tuning fork, but she's the instrument. The word of God is the tuning fork. This is the constant. Now, I'm not gonna do it, okay? But I know that it's possible to, let's see, if I follow this string up, it's this, it's this one right here, right? So if I, if I turn this, then, then this is no longer tuned to this. The, the word of God is that which is supposed to tune you. And Eve was tuning herself to the tempter. She, she rang false with the father of lies. She wanted a particular outcome, and so she heard what she wanted to hear from Satan, and she adjusted the string. The, the thing that doesn't change, this tuning fork is gonna be the same yesterday, today. It's gonna be the same, all things being equal, forever. You and I are supposed to be continually tuned to the word of God. You say, how is it that we can have some sense of victory over the tempter? The same way that our perfect example had victory over the temptation of the wicked one. Isn't it interesting when you start to study the two primary temptation scenes that are found in scripture, there is one that failed miserably in Genesis chapter three because they, they messed with the word of God. And there's another that presents itself so powerfully, so victoriously 
because they used accurately, in a sense, the tuning fork of the word of God over and over and over again when Jesus is tempted. Matthew 4, verse number 4. Matthew 4, verse number 4. But he answered the tempter and said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said unto the tempter, that old serpent, the dragon, the devil, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Matthew 4, verse number 10, then said Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Every time you sin, every time I sin, there is some deviation from the absolute tune of the word of God. I have now doubted God. I've doubted his goodness. I've doubted his intention. I've doubted the fact that he really does have something good in mind. And I wonder if God is actually keeping something good from me. I'm gonna venture out just a little bit because if God's not good, then it means he's keeping something back and I want that something really badly. Do you know there is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and that he will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. You say, what is that way of escape? It is the word of God that lives and abides forever. How does Jesus have victory over the tempter? The word of God. Did God really mean it when he said, wine's a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise? Did God really mean it when he said, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Did God really mean it when he said, put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth? Did he really mean it? Did God really intend for wives to submit themselves unto their own husbands? Does God really expect for husbands to love their wives even as Christ loved the church? Is God serious about children obeying their parents? The first commandment with promise? Is God serious about supplying all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Does he mean it or not? It all comes down to what you do with, hath God said? <laughs> 